we go. Love Talk Radio. Okay, Pillow, stay there. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. They never will bring you there So let's talk about it Everyone, this is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network, and we have the best authors in the universe. And today we have one of my favorite people in the world, John Land, and Caitlin Strong is back. And you don't want to mess with her ever. Trust me, you don't want to do that. And in case you don't know, that was Trinity House Entertainment. That's Rachel and Michael that created the music, and they're going to be on October 28th with their brand new song. We don't have to wait. So, good morning, John. How you doing? I'm doing good, but, you know, you have all these great authors on. I guess I guess you had an opening. You had to squeeze me in because you, you had to I, fill some time, I, I right? All these anyway. great people. I just put you in anyway. <laughs> I appreciate I that. I automatically do things. You know how I do that, you know. I am very excited because this show is booked until December 8th and then. And you're down for December 8th for that crazy panel that I'm doing. It's going to be fun. And I'm not going to tell you who's on it, but it's going to be fun. Well, I can tell you. And so how did you create that first scene in Camino Pass? That's what we're going to talk about on the 8th. How do you take the ancestor from the past and bring it into the present and then com- and then relate the, the plot and tie it in? So how did you create that first scene of the Camino Pass that got me really nervous? I mean, all those people dead? Oh, my God. Uh, well, I, I think it was, it, in a large part, it was homage to the Andromeda strain. <clears throat> and, of uh-huh. course, I wrote this book a long time before anyone was talking about pandemics. But when, when I think about classic openings, and I'm talking more about the film opening of the Andromeda strain, then um, it's basically the same in the book, but the, the drama of, of how they did it, how they portrayed it in the movie. The idea, the class, one of the classic staples of thrillers the modern thriller, um, and this dates all the way back, really, to you know, to the early James Bond movies with Sean Connery. That one of the staples of the thriller is something impossible happens in the opening, mm-hmm. something that can't be explained, and immediately what you have is a hook, on a, a grabber right away. Now, the thing about these prologues and the master of them, of course, is Clive Cussler. Um, you know, he's written some of the greatest prologues, I think, ever in thrillers, including Raise the Titanic, Vixen 03, Sahara, all incredible prologues about things that happened in the past. And a lot of the fun, a lot of the fun then becomes trying to figure out what happened. You're playing along. In other words, if you think about why people love mysteries so much, they love solving the crime. They love watching in, in the case of the Murder, She Wrote books that, that, that I've written, they love watching mm-hmm. Jessica Fletcher or Sherlock Holmes or Hercule uh-huh. Poirot solve the mystery of who killed the, the, the body that was found in Chapter 1. The thriller takes that to another level. 
for in, instead of one person, in the case of Camino Pass, it's almost 300 who die within minutes in a single night. Um, it becomes a mystery, but with much higher stakes. Because what you're doing is not just solving a crime. The hero, in this case, Caitlin Strong, has to figure mm-hmm. out what happened in order to prevent a lot more people from dying. So that's the yeah. classic thriller opening. And in this case, it really was a homage to the Andromeda strain. And then as soon as I sat down to write it, I had this image of a sunburnt mailman with one earbud mm-hmm. in his, you know, in his ears traipsing through the Texas desert um, mm. and spotted by a drone, Homeland security catches up with him, and he's left a trail of mail all the way to where he came from, where he came from last. And they follow the trail and that's how they uncover that this terrible big thing, that's a Hitchcockian term, the big thing, the MacGuffin, something terrible has happened. And then when I started the book, that was the prologue. Um, the, or, or one of the prologues in, in this case. Um, but then when I decided to do this with Camino Pass, um, it seemed natural to start the historical thread, the historical subplot, in this case involving William Raystrong, Caitlin's uh, mm-hmm. great-grandfather, teaming up with Pancho Villa. I had already decided to do that, but I didn't know that they were going to meet for the first time in the very same town where Caitlin is called to the scene where 300 people have basically died inexplicably. So now you have an immediate connection between the present and the past, and you have Caitlin directly involved. Because what I didn't get to earlier in my description, in my explanation of of the place of the prologue in in thrillers through Mm -hmm. modern thriller history was the trick is, when do you reintroduce what happened in the prologue? Many thrillers, you see the prologue, but it's disconnected. It's disjointed from the rest of the plot. By the time you get back to it, halfway through the book, you've forgotten it. But in this case, and I think this is one of the, one of the real strengths structurally of Strong from the Heart, is that in, at the end of, I think, Chapter 3, after... The classic, you know, there's always a big opening with Caitlin where she does something incredible yeah, that may or did. may not be connected to, to what's going on. But we are at, we are back at the scene of Camino Pass very early in the book. I don't wait for a third of the book to pass or half of the book to pass or even more. We get back to that town where everybody dies very quickly. I know, and that's what kept me going. But, you know, sometimes, you know me, when I read something, I don't read it like everybody else. I read the book, and then I go back, and I read the past, and I read the present so that I don't mess up when I do my review, which is on Amazon, people with 12 stars. Seriously. <laughs> I did that Thank yesterday. you. I read it last night. See, I did a good job this time. What can I you say? You did a great job. Not everybody, loves, not everybody loves what I wrote, but what can I tell you? I, I try. I love it. Um well, this scene moves to the elementary school, and of course, being an educator, I got nervous. And yep. the children are in danger of being taken in custody by ICE, and of course, by the time Caitlin gets done, I applauded. I was really pretty. So how did you create that between the ICE agents, who I don't like, and Caitlin? Because she's smart, and the way that she got one over on them, 
I said, you go, girl. You did it. So how did you do that? <laughs> that it's, <laughs> she it's never, a great you, question. You don't mess with her. <laughs> no, no, you don't. And I think from a structural standpoint, you know, I always like to talk structure, and, and I know you have a lot of yeah. writers who listen to the show. So yep, they in, are. Every, in every story, in every great story, in every bad story, the hero needs to have a moment that is traditionally called save the cat. Um, and, and the thing is, if you, if, you, if you meet someone who saves a cat, you like them immediately because they save the cat. They climb the tree. It's a metaphor. Um, so I always try to find a way to introduce Caitlin, sometimes in, in a sense that's not connected to the story as a whole, but just in a way that fleshes out her character, her intelligence, her strength, her determination, her values, her morals, um, the fact that she's a relentless crusader for, for justice. And six children who were born in Texas and are being falsely taken into custody by ICE, that's unjust. That's not justice. So the other part of that scene is I'm kind of showcasing my own politics. I came up with the idea for that scene um, around the time kids were being put in cages. Um, and these mm. ICE agents are, are just like Nazi stormtroopers barging in wherever they want to go. And we see them in my home state of Rhode Island, um, where we have a very high immigrant population. And they're, to mm. me, they're bullies. To me, they're just tough guys or would-be tough guys who are preying on the innocent. Now, not all of them, but enough mm-hmm. of them are. So this yeah. was a cathartic experience for me and I think anyone who reads the scene. Because what ICE is doing in the scene, and let's not take the bigger picture. Let's just take the smaller picture. It's wrong. Mm. They are wrong. And they need people who are innocent, need someone to stand up for them. And for generations, that has been the Texas Rangers. The Texas Rangers have always been there on the side of, 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 the, uh, of the innocent. They've been, ever since they were protecting the frontier from rampaging Mexican bandits and, and marauding Native Americans in those days, they were so-called Indians. Um, you know, the Comanche mostly in Texas, um, you know, who were massacring the settlers. Now, whether it, it was justified or not based on the fact that their land had been taken, they were still massacring people, and it was the Texas Rangers who, came to, who protected those settlers and ranchers to a great extent. So to me, this is just a throwback to a scene like that, um, and I had so much fun trying to figure out, okay, how do we do this without getting in a gunfight? How do we come up with a way where Caitlin mm. can get the kids safely away with, uh, in a legal way? But then, of course, um, when she needs him the most, her, her deadly protector, Guillermo Paz, also shows up in that scene. And I nobody's going to. You talk about nobody messes with Caitlin. Well, <laughs> no, nobody definitely ever messes with Colonel Guillermo Paz. I wish I had him the other day when I needed somebody to go after somebody for me. Well, you know, maybe I'll call him. You never know. Anyway. I know him personally, so I can put you in touch with him. That would be good. <laughs> so then we we go we go back to Camino Pass, 1898, and Ray Strong. I love this guy. And Pancho Villa, who I looked up so I got to know better. And he's about to take him to trial. The fun part is that neither one are intimidated by the other. Pancho Villa seems to have a really 
he's cool. He was a really cool character. Not upset that he's being, you know, taken in and he's in handcuffs, blah, blah, blah. So how did they wind up, you know, being like moving to an alliance together? And they, they decided that they were going to do something. What was Pancho Villa? He tried to entice him to say to him, well, I, I know something. I'm, you should really, you know, be on my side. How did you create that? Cause I love well, we have to take a step really back. Did. This is a tradition. Yeah of the books going all the way back to the second book in the series um, where it was Caitlin's grandfather. And there's always a subplot, a thread that takes place in the past um, that is directly connected to what Caitlin is investigating in the present. And and, um, I always try to illuminate facts that may be parts of history that have been lost or, or never known. In the case, giving, giving, you know, a couple books ago, my favorite one, when I did Strong to the Bone, um, mm-hmm. I didn't know um, that there were Nazi POWs held in, in the state of Texas. Well, there were 123,000 of them in the state of Texas. I didn't even know that. So what a great way to, set, to open a book with a murder that takes, a triple murder that takes place in one of these camps. Now, mm-hmm. that was that one. In this one, what I was playing off of was the fact of, uh, of a question I've long asked myself. How did the Mexican drug world start? Where were the mm-hmm. cartels born? How did it happen? And the, the, the answer was much more interesting than I ever expected. And the Mexicans had never been involved in the drug in the drug trade, way up until the late 19th century, mid you know 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, and then Chinese immigrants came to Mexico, carrying bringing opium seeds with them, and they became they began harvesting opium, which made heroin, and that was and they literally divided up the country, they took. English-sounding names. The people that I reference in that book, one of those characters, I think, uh, I think his name in the in the book is Felipe Wang. He was uh-huh. a real character from history. This really happened. So the birth of the Mexican cartels lies, uh, at least indirectly, in Chinese immigration and the poppy and, and basically the poppy trade, heroin. That's where it started. So I wanted to incorporate that into the book because so much of this book is about opioids, uh, which I'm sure we're going to get to. So oh, if yes. we're going to do a book on opioids, the subplot in the past should be connected to that and should deal with how the drug b- smuggling business started to begin with. So I had a lot of fun with that. And I mentioned Strong to the Bone, which was out you know, a couple of years ago. In that mm-hmm. book, William uh, Earl Strong, Caitlin's grandfather, Mm-hmm. Mixes it up with J. Edgar Hoover, who's a character. I've also used Judge Roy Bean. I've used John D. Yep. Rockefeller. Um, I have tremendous fun um, incorporating these historical characters. And when I started that scene in Camino Pass, I wasn't 100%. You know, it, it didn't occur to me right away that it was Pancho Villa. And then when I started it, I went, oh, my God, he's coming to get Pancho Villa. Because what a great figure at that time in history. And, of course, he was just a boy at that point. He was only, I think, 19 or yeah. 20 years old. Um, so that's the fun. Because here's the rule I live by as a writer. 
if I have fun writing the book, you as a reader is going to have fun reading the book. It, it's common sense. It only goes to it, – it, 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 it's just the way it, you would figure. It's a natural mm-hmm. progression. I can tell when I read a book if the writer wasn't having fun. It's, it, mm-hmm. if, if it was hard and they were, and, and they were pushing for it. To me, it all comes natural. To, to me, writing is like water running downhill. You can't stop it. And that's the way I write, and that's where the, those scenes came from. No, I agree with you because friends read how many books? I have no idea. And um, lately, some of the books I've been reading, uh, I read in like no time. And then there were like 10 on my chair that have been sitting there for like over a week and a half. And I'm reading them like a couple at a time. And this is not good. And some of them are like some well-known authors. And it's like um, I feel like I'm going through root canal. But the mark that's a great that's a great yeah. metaphor the mark of yeah. a of, of a great storyteller and a great story yeah. is that when you read it it feels like it was written just for you it's like yeah. the writer is only he only cared or she only cared about writing for one person when they wrote that story and if you're able to find that intimacy because the reading the 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 reading the act of reading is very solitary and yet, it, it's you—you you have this, um, you know, it's—it's it's very intimate because it's just you and the book in the room on the train on the beach. It's just you and the book, which means it's you and the writer. So it's this very yeah. intimate relationship that you form while, with the characters. And if the writer pulls off his job or her job, if I do what mm-hmm. I'm supposed to do, you will get sucked into my world. And you will be get taken out of your world. The mark of a great book, not just a great thriller, is you forget where you're where you are. You, time loses meaning. Mm-hmm. You, you forget everything else but what's going on in that book. You become swept away in that world. When you're aware you're reading, you're not having the kind of fun I want you to have as with as with one of my books. That's very true because when Caitlin gets in trouble, I get heart palpitations. And when somebody tries to hurt her, I want to help out. No, seriously. I no, like that, that. That's true. Seriously. It's one of my days today. So we're going to bring mm-hmm. this into the present because this was really so current. There are too many young people that get sucked in by their friends to decide that they're going to do opiates. So we move to the present, and we learn what happened with Luke. I want to smack him in the head for being an idiot. Yeah, doing well. that. That's not good. And then we learn about the senator and his opiate sales, and I didn't like him either. Um, senator Eccles and Ron Fast. Why did Luke Luke decide to, to – why did he get involved with drugs? I mean, what, you whatever. Know what? Opiates are, are like – you know what? Doctors give them out like they give out aspirins or um, – Anything, or you have coffee, coffee pods. They just give them out. Well, the prescription. I, I think it's when you look at it. Um, think about COVID, and think about all yeah. the kids who are still having parties and still going, still gathering yeah, in large groups. How, How about you know they have they even have these parties called COVID infection parties where they go and they try to get yeah. the disease, and then one of them got it. And the last words he said before he died was, "I guess I shouldn't have gone to that party." Um, what this the, the human yeah. brain, especially in males, mm-hmm. does not develop until it's not fully developed until they're about 25, and this explains mm-hmm. why teenagers make so many bad choices, so many mm-hmm. bad judgments, 
And it's it's really I think part of it is peer pressure. Part of it mm-hmm. is in you know indestructible they feel they're indestructible. Um it's it's not you can be bad things can you don't have to be an addict for bad things to happen. Remember kids are not swallowing pills, opioids. They're grinding them up and snorting them so they get the immediate heroin like high. Um, they're not, you know, they're not baking it or anything. They're just grinding it up into a powder and snorting it. So it's, when you use opiates that way, you, you're only using them for one purpose, and that's what he does. He makes a mistake. But you know what? I think the thrillers are better when you have characters who are capable yeah. of, of, of being wrong. Because it's much more fun when you have flawed people who've made mistakes. Because the thing that I'm sure you were going to get to, but I'll jump ahead of you a little bit. Okay. <laughs> what, what Caitlin sees in Luke, or the fact that Caitlin has also developed an addiction to Vicodin. And she's yeah. done it legitimately. She's not snorting it. She had a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, a few books ago, people will recall, in, in, in Strong as Steel. Mm-hmm. Um you know, she comes up, you know, there's a big battle scene that's like the second battle of the Alamo, and she sets off an explosion. Well, when you're too close to an explosion, what happens is you get, a, you know, literally your skull gets these tiny fracture lines. It's not fractured, it's not broken, but it, it's like porcelain. You see the crack. It needs to heal. You know, you get the serious concussion because it slams, the, you know, it, it's, it turns your brain, a big explosion, into, a ping, into, your, into like a ping pong ball. So she's got this tremendous pain. So for two, for a year now, she's been taking Vicodin. She's been taking pills to alleviate um, the pain that she's going through. Well, the, the, the moral dilemma that raises in the book is this. Is she any different than Lucas? Luke did mm-hmm. it recreationally, but he's not addicted. Caitlin is doing it for the right reason. She's taking Vicodin as it's prescribed. The problem is... She's developed a tolerance, and now she needs more, and she needs more, and she needs more. And now you don't even know. know, So the the thing is, she carries around these pills, and she pops them like candy because she's in pain. So when she realizes she's been addicted, that plays off the overdose of this teenage boy who made an error in judgment. And so I wanted to present both sides of the opioid crisis. Not only are people abusing the drugs purposefully as, you know, basically mm-hmm. they're buying them illegally and they're using recreation from a recreational standpoint. There are also millions of people out there who are addicted because of pain. And they can't live without these drugs, but the drugs are going to kill them if they, because they've developed a tolerance and now they're taking so much Oxycontin or, or using fentanyl patches. Or, or some yeah. people... Vicodin doesn't even have any effect anymore. Um, you know, other people... So so that's really... I think when you have a thriller that mm. resonates on a level that is both visual, which is what thrillers are, they're like movies in your mind, but also visceral in a way that hits you in your gut because it's about something that's relevant and that matters and that affects every single person in this country in one way or another... Well, now you've taken your book and you've raised it to a whole different level. You know, you, 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 you've, you've made it relevant. And I think relevance can only make a book better. Imagination 
can only carry you so far. But if you have relevance in a thriller, mm-hmm. if it's about something important in addition to something that's entertaining and fun to read, now you're just compl- you're writing a complete novel, not just a thriller. No, that's true because, you know, you go to the doctor's office and you tell them, I have a pain in my leg, whatever, and the first thing, I'm serious, they say to you, would you like Percocet, Vicodin, Oxycodone, Tramadol, um, Neurontin, Tegridol? I know them all. And I go, what I happened to Motrin. Advil? <laughs> I forgot, that, that's it, I Motrin. I take Motrin or I'll take yep. Tylenol. That's it. Those, those yep. are my things, Tylenol. And I said, why would I need that? Well, you know, you don't want to be in pain. I go, I'll settle. I, I can handle it. That in a cup of Javali coffee, I'm doing great. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know because I see what happens with my cousin who takes every one of those, every last one of those that I just mentioned, and morphine every single day in order to survive. I said, I don't Jeez. know how you stay awake. So we've got another another element to this story besides the fact that we're going to talk about the fact that you're right. They get it illegally through pill mills. Which was exactly. in Capital One that we talked about. See, I didn't forget anything here. Yeah, yeah, yes, that was the yes. We have Yarik Bone, who I didn't like, and he creates his legal fights, which was really scary. And why does Fosh create this venue, and how does Bone come into play with the senator? I mean, that's scary oh. that they're able to do that, and they didn't even care if anybody got dead. Seriously, well, so that was the purpose a league, of people a, getting a, a dead. Le- you know, underground fighting has been, or underground boxing in some cases, has yeah. been a staple in Texas. Um, the, the Texas Ranger uh, uh, motto is one riot, one ranger. And it came about in 1918 or 1916. It was, it was around, the, it was not long after the turn of the 20th century. And basically, back in those days, boxing had been outlawed in Texas because too, too many people had been mm-hmm. killed in the ring. So... A mayor got, got wind of the fact that a, that a heavyweight prize fight was being staged in his town illegally, and he called the Texas Rangers. Well, this is a big deal. 10,000 people might show up at this illegal prize fight because you've got – it's the heavyweight championship of the world, and it's being staged in Texas. So that they, they call the Texas Rangers or wire or cable the Texas Rangers that we – you know, emergency, get down here as soon as you can – and the mayor and the town leaders, the selectmen, are waiting at the mm-hmm. train. And all the people, everybody gets off the train and they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting for this whole detachment, this squadron of Texas Rangers. And one of them get one Texas Ranger, Bill McDonald, a famous gunfighter, gets off. One! And the mayor looks at him and goes, are you the only one they sent? And Bill McDonald looks at him and goes, Hell. You only got one prize fight. How many of us do you need? And that's where the phrase "one riot, one ranger" comes from. And there was, and mm-hmm. that fight never happened because of Bill McDonald. So the idea of underground boxing, in this case, bare knuckle mm-hmm. brawling, kind of like the ultimate fighting taken to the next level. I wanted to introduce that. That really was my way of introducing Yarick Bone, who is the book's killer, yeah. killing villain. He's not the planner. He's not the plotter. He's not at the head no. of the conspiracy, but he's the one who's fun to watch because he can feel no pain. And in the opening scene, Yarrick Bone, who you know is going to fight Guillermo Paz in the end. Yeah. You know that. You know what it's building toward. Um, that was so good, though. He, that was so he good. He kills, I think he kills five people in five minutes. Yeah. And literally, because this is all underground. So you can, you know, the bodies just get buried in the desert. That's it. 
you know, somebody, you know, if you, if you survive two minutes with Yarrick Bone, you get $10,000. Well, a lot of people would take that bet, except he kills the five people uh, one at a time effortlessly. Um, so that gave me a staging to introduce a character I really wanted to write. And the challenge when you've done as many books as I have, and you've done 11 books, this is the 11th in the Caitlin Strong series, how do you keep it fresh? How do you avoid repeating yourself? How do you avoid redundancy? Yeah. And in large part, you do that by pushing the envelope, not only with what's happening, but who's behind it and who it's happening to. In a series, all the good guys you basically know already. You've met them before. So the only new things I can introduce, interject, are the bad guys and peripheral characters. And I thought putting the government, and that's what Caitlin will discover, that forces inside the government itself are, have basically taken over the opioid trade. Is that true? No. Is it within the realm of credibility? Absolutely, based on mm-hmm. how the government has enabled. There's a reason why we have an opioid problem. And it's not just Purdue Pharma and the other pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. It's because the government allowed it to happen because the pharmaceutical lobby was so powerful and they were making so much money. So is it that much of a stretch to say, why don't we eliminate the middlemen? Why don't we take the pharmaceutical companies out of the equation? And why don't we go into the drug business? You know, why don't we manufacture the drugs and sell them? Well, obviously, you're going to make billions of dollars. And that's Mm. where... That's what all, and that's where the drugs that Luke, Caitlin's surrogate son, owed, almost died on when he overdoses. That's the network that Port Wesley Masters, Caitlin's boy, that's a, father. That's what I was just going to bring him. Yeah, that's, and that's say. where he. That's the network that he that he can that he brings down. He is going to unravel this network at the street level, where, mm. but. That's at, in the micro. In the macro, Caitlin is bringing it down at the, at the level in Washington. So I think that as we're talking about this, because you know you're always the first interview I do for my books. Uh, it's a tradition. Right. Uh, you know, and as I'm talking about this, I, I think what, what I'm kind of realizing myself is that Strong from the Heart is, is probably, and no, it's not, it's, it's certainly a much more complete book than almost anything I've ever done before because it has all these flip sides of the coin. It has not only drug dealing today, but you go back in the past and see what, how it started. Mm-hmm. Not only is a young character, oh, you know, does a young character almost die of an overdose, but the hero realizes she has an addiction problem that she has to deal with. You know, you've got these different things going on. Mm-hmm. You see who's running the operation but you also see how it's being conducted on the street level with these pill mills and street dealers and getting yeah. opioids into the schools. So, again, it comes back to the simple premise of if I have a great time writing the book, you as a reader will have a great time reading the book. But what I'm talking about is not something I consciously set out to do. It arose organically in the creation of the story. It was instinctive. Um, I'm not trying to teach you anything. I'm not trying to make you, you, you're not going to learn it. I don't want you to learn lessons from this. Um, It's just, I'm just telling a story. And all this came out 
uh, or not everything I'm talking about, but a lot of what I just alluded to was not necessarily what I sat down to do, but it emerged through the course of the writing. Well, I, I take notes because I get to learn a lot, too, seriously. So every time I write something, I write another book, I learn it from all of you guys, and I figure, well, let me see what would happen if I did this. But now we get to a character that I grew to like her better this time. But Nola. I'm not crazy about her. Nola. Nola is <laughs> Caitlin's half-sister. No, Caitlin doesn't want to admit, and they hate each other, and they're at each other's throats, which is really cool. So, And then Court, Wesley, see, he, I, I got really mad because I thought he was going to cheat on poor Caitlin with Nola, which ah, I think she would like that. That's a good idea. I know, yeah. I said, you know, she's got the hots for court. I can tell you that. And she's she's got the material to go after she's him. She's sleeping with his son, though. That's a little weird. I know that she's sleeping with Dylan, and I I think Dylan needs to wake up. And I don't know why he. he what can I say? He's young and he's not too bright either at times. And he tells he's everybody to mind their own business. He's got to be pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, he's a smart kid, but he I don't know Nola. He makes bad so, choices. Well, everybody makes bad choices except me because my mother would stop me before I did anything. I had no choice. <laughs> I don't think I ever made it really, maybe once, and that was the end of that. Um, so what happens when Nola and Court team up in order to take this pillow down, and, and how does Caitlin feel about that? Because I would not be happy. No, seriously. Well, first off, in, in discussing Nola, I, I mentioned yeah. about keeping a – I just mentioned this is a perfect segue – we were talk- yeah. I was talking about how you keep a series fresh after 11 books. Yeah. What, why are That's Jack right. Reacher books so much fun to read? Um, why is James Lee Burke and Dave, his Dave Roby show character better than ever? Um, you know, um, Quinn Coulson, the great character from Ace Atkins. How do these people stay vital to the reader? Well, you introduce other characters. No, this is only Nola's second book, but it's, she's the character that everybody talks to, talks about. And mm-hmm. basically she is Caitlin's half-sister, but she is Caitlin. She's all id. She has no restraints. She is Caitlin on steroids because she will kill anyone at any time. It means nothing to her. She, I think one of the most powerful scenes in the book is when she sets up four guys just so she has yeah. an excuse to shoot them. And she does it. But remember something. You, you alluded to something very important before, that Court Wesley asks for her help. And yeah. when, you ask, when you make a deal with the devil, the de- when you dance with the devil, the devil doesn't change. The devil changes mm-hmm. you. But you know what you're getting. And later on, Caitlin does the same thing. She, sa- she says, I'm getting the band back together. I need you. Because many times in life, you may not approve of someone, but you need them. And you need what they have. They're, it's a skill set. And what the great thing about Nola is because she has no remorse, no compunction, because she's basically a psychopath, but she's just on the good guy's side. She's a killer. She's a cold-blooded assassin in a way that no other characters in this book has ever been before. Uh, she represents an extreme, a warning that this is what Caitlin's nature would allow her to be if she doesn't have checks and balances. They're the same person. They have the same father. They're basically the, the, the best scene and the, the best exchange of dialogue. There are a couple really strong exchanges of dialogue in the book, of course, but the one between Caitlin 
and Nola, where Nola says, "Are you telling me you don't think your our grandfather, our great grandfather, didn't enjoy opening up, killing all those men with that Gatling gun? It's in your mm-hmm. blood and it's in mine. We're the same, and they are the same." Caitlin wears a badge. Caitlin has a different role. So her violence mm-hmm. is tempered. So Nola and Court Wesley, it's such a fraught relationship. Because, again, she seduced his son. They can't stop Dylan from seeing her. She's now living with a 22-year-old boy, young man, mm-hmm. at, at, at college across the country, and there's nothing they can do about it. And yet, Caitlin and Court Wesley need her gun. They need her skill set. And I think this is a staple of Westerns in general. Going mm. all the way back to Wired Earp's best friend, Doc Holliday. There's a lot of from that era that's embellished. That is true. Doc Holliday and Wired Earp, were, they, they rode together. And when Wired Earp was going to the OK Corral, he needed Doc Holliday's gun. And Doc Holliday was an outlaw. He was a gunfighter. He was a murderer. So this is the tradition of the Caitlin Strong books. They're modern-day Westerns in the same sense, and thrillers in general are modern-day Westerns to a great extent. Think about Jack Reacher. He doesn't ride Mm -hmm. a horse. He rides a bus or a train. He gets to a town. He gets off the bus or train. He cleans up everything that's messy in the town, kills all the bad guys, gets back on the train, and goes goes to the next town. That's what a gunfighter does. And that's what Kate, now Caitlin Strong is a Texas Ranger, so she's more like Wired Earp than she is like Jack Reacher. She doesn't have that. Uh, she she's traveling with portfolio, whereas Reacher just goes wherever he wants. So, um, but this is the Western the tradition of westerns as a genre, and the Strong series basically are modern day westerns. Well, this is another question. First of all, I'm writing notes, as I said. So I know Caitlin and Nola kill in a different way. For One is justified, sort of, and the other one justifies herself to do it because she feels she Good has point. to do that. So we have the guy in the past. So you guys got to find out about this guy because we have the senator in the present, but we have the guy that started it in the past. We have Felipe Wong, and he relates to the opiate, the poppy farms and the opiates back then. So why didn't anyone try to stop this guy and Poncho, I love Poncho, and Ray team up to take his operation down? And how do they plan to do that? Because this guy's sneak, sneaky. And if anybody reads the end of the book, you're going to well, wonder really why. Seriously. Felipe Wong is, I liked him, though. what he's doing, he has a great need for labor to dig, mm-hmm. to, you know, to, to, to harvest his fields, to, you know, to hoe his fields. This is, you know, obviously this is the you know the 1870s, 1880s, so there wasn't, maybe it's the 1890s, I forgot um, exactly when. But whatever it is, you don't have, the, you don't have the, the big machines that do the job today. So he kidnaps all the children from the town of Camino Pass in the past. This is the same town that gets wiped out in the present. Um, and that's connected. What's going on in the town today, why those kids are kidnapped, is directly related to what mm-hmm. happens in the present and how the town is wiped out in a matter of minutes mm-hmm. in a single night. Um, so there's a matter of justice. The reason why William Ray Strong doesn't f- fulfill his assignment, which is just to deliver uh, um, 
to to take Pancho Villa to trial um, at the county seat. That's all his job is. But when he finds out about these kidnapped kids, the fact that Villa can get bring him, and we we, you allude, we alluded to this before when you asked me another question, Villa can get can help William Way Ray Strong, Caitlin's great grandfather, find mm-hmm. the missing children from Camino Pass. Therefore, because he's a hero, William Waite Ray Strong decides to ride with Pancho Villa instead of taking him in to, you know, for trial. Um, and then when they realize what that, that Felipe Wong is up to, because it's, uh, it's not just the opioids. You talk about how this was going on. People can get away with anything if they have power. Money buys you power. And mm-hmm. Mexico has been corrupt for as long as Mexico has existed. He's paying off people. He's buying their allegiance. He and other of these Chinese immigrants, there's four or five of them that all became major criminal figure, underworld figures in the poppy trade that gave birth to the modern-day drug trade. Um, they basically owned different parts of the country to some extent, not to the extent the cartels do today, but, but it's comparable to, comparable to that. So Caitlin... But you know, no spoiler alert. Caitlin ultimately does not bring down. I mean, sorry, William Ray Strong does not bring down Felipe Wong. He comes as close as he mm-hmm. can, but it would be historically inaccurate to say he succeeded because it didn't happen. Um, but he does get the children back, and, and that's really what his assignment was. He does ride with Pancho Villa, um, and I think in one sense, what William Ray Strong is unable to do in the past, Caitlin is able to do in the present when we get to the point where she is, is she going to be able to bring down this cadre, this, this cabal of powerful Washington power brokers who are actually controlling the nation, who's taken over the nation's drug trade. That's scary. So before I forget, because otherwise I don't want to forget Monday, Jeff Bond with anarchy, of mice, then on the 19th, Daniel Perry, Danny Perry, and on the 24th, Jeff Bond again. I'm not going to announce the 26th request. The publicist hasn't told me if the author is going to do it, and I'll be very disappointed because he's a New York Times author, and I'm very, I, I plan for this. On September 3rd, uh, Deb Pines with um, her book, and on the 14th, Alan Jacobson, who we love with the new Karen Vale book. And on the 16th, Jonathan strikes back with Brian Freeman. And that's just part of September. And I was really, 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 really excited that D.P. Lyle is going to do two shows in November with me. So I, I got really excited when he said that he wanted to do two pages for Rig, which is phenomenal, and the one book that I didn't read yet, which I will read as soon as it gets here. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, thrilled. And... Eric Eccles is diabolical, and the plan for his pills of both types will take down millions of people. What would happen? And then what would happen if something like that actually succeeded? Are you talking – which part? Are you talking about the using, uh, using what the pills are making to kill – as weapons? Yeah. What that would happen part, what, if – well, the plan is pretty diabolical. I don't want to give too much, give everything yeah, it away. Is. 
But their diabolical plan, you know, it's the ultimate thing where um, what they what they see. See, here here's the other thing. What happens in the book is they discover something. uh, What they're doing is bad. And then they find out because they're doing this bad thing, they uncover that they actually did something even worse than they thought. Uh, What they were doing is responsible for, you know, a, a lot of people getting killed. And now then they find out why. And now they know they can kill a lot more people if they want to. So the fun of this book is it's not what you watch evolving is not something they originally had planned. It's an opportunity mm-hmm. they see that, that they take advantage of. And basically, if if you we we've seen this if if you if you put uh, if anyone who takes one of these pills dies anyone because they're they, because they've been poisoned they've been uh, they've been contaminated. Um, with, with something that can kill people. Well, you're, what you're going to have is mass death on an unprecedented level wherever you drop a lot of the, where you put, a, where you we distribute a lot of these pills. Um, basically, people, you know, it, it, you're going to have a, an incredible, and the, here's the thing about it. Before the nation where you, or the city, realizes what's happening, it's too late because all the people are dead. So it's a pretty nefarious plot. Um, mm. And it's something that Caitlin, you know, Caitlin, it, it's it's where these books, um, you know, th- there was an AP review recently which compares Caitlin to Caitlin, Str- Caitlin Strong to James Bond, and there is definitely mm. a James Bondian uh, uh, feel to the plots in these books because I want the stakes to be high. I want mm. Caitlin not just to be solving murders. But I want her to be involved in something, and I, I, we started. This is where we started off. With she is in a position where she must succeed to save millions of lives, or thousands of lives, or tens of thousands of lives, um, because that, that's how deadly this plot is that she's uncovered, and that's what makes her a hero. Heroes are defined by the sacrifices they make toward a better good, and Caitlin is going to save all those people that she's never even met by stopping these pills from ever reaching them. Um, and that's what that's kind of what makes her um, a hero. Well, I have a character that I have to bring in because he was in the other books, and you brought him back in a strange way. He doesn't, He's kind of unfit this time, doesn't look the same, and that would be Jones. So how come he wants to give? Oh, I, I cracked up from this. I said, "Oh my God, go on a diet, people. What's wrong with yes. you? What happened to you? You're all bent out of shape." So how come he wants to go back into Homeland? And um, what does Caitlin think about that? Because I don't, you know, you know, I don't trust well, people. Well, Jones, come back for, for those who may not have read past books yeah. in the series, Jones is Caitlin's contact at Homeland Security, who she's who's been in every yeah. single book. And he's, yeah. he sniffs around like a dog because whenever she's on the trail of something, he's, he's, he's right there because he figures she can help him. In this case, to change it up a little bit, he's been fired from or released from Homeland Security where he had a secret job. And now he's in the private sector. He's making a ton of money, and he hates it. He wants to get back to the fix. He wants to get back to the fight. He wants to get back to the war, basically. Um, he, he wants that. And he sees what Caitlin is working on as a method where she can help him get back to where he wants to be. But in order to, for that to happen, 
he needs to help her using the contacts he still has. He's kind mm-hmm. of a Deus Ex Machina character, a godlike character, in that just, you know, Caitlin goes to him when he, she needs information. When she, mm. he, ha, he offers historical perspective. He is the one who tells her about something from many years ago that's very relevant to, to, you know, to the plot itself. Uh, so he, they, they kind of exist as a kind of, he helps her and she helps him. She doesn't like him, but she needs him. And he's a creature of, you know, he's that kind of character um, mm. who pops in and out, but whose purpose is mainly to provide information. Because the thrillers, thrillers are structured, especially these Caitlin Strong books. They're like treasure hunts. You go somewhere and you get a clue. And that clue takes you to the next step. And the next step. And the next step. Well, at each one of those clues is a piece of information. And the heroes of the story need to come by that information a certain way. In one respect, that information, like to Court Wesley, when he beats the hell out of a drug dealer, the drug dealer and, and knocks and brushes off all his bodyguards, the drug dealer tells Court Wesley where he got the drugs from, and that's Court Wesley's next stop on his treasure hunt. With mm-hmm. Caitlin, with, with Jones, Jones helps Caitlin figure out what is really going on. He he, he helps provide links between events, linkage. Um, and information that that Caitlin would otherwise not be privy to. Thrillers in general are full of characters like this, characters who exist as as kind of bridges that get you from one place to another, and you that's their that's their major purpose. Um, but what was fun when you have a character that's well known in the series, making him mm-hmm. look, you know, now he's pudgy, he's out of shape. He doesn't carry a gun anymore. Yeah. You know, just, ver- just, in other words, vary the pace a little bit. Show us something about a character. It's the same reason why er- what everyone is talking about in this book, and maybe we're, we were going to get to this anyway, this seven-foot deadliest killer in the world, Guillermo Paz, becomes an elementary school gym teacher. That and he's hilarious. doing this in all the books. He's always in these crazy backdrops. <clears throat> where he's in search of spiritual enlightenment. Mm. Um, and those scenes with Paz come so much to life. Um, this guy who is a maniacal killing machine, how mm-hmm. much these kids love him, <clears throat> and how, he, how much he, he likes them. And again, what you try to do in it <clears throat> to keep a series fresh is to constantly challenge yourself on how you can make your characters as interesting to readers in the 11th mm. as they were in the first book. And that, if you do that, that is the formula for writing a best-selling series. Well, I, I agree with you. But we have a few more minutes, and I would be remiss if I didn't bring up another two characters together. You created the final scenes, and you're going to go, you have to, I know you're going to bring Nola back. Because she's got to be the nemesis that sticks the knife in Caitlin's back once in a while. And I know that. And Doyle. So are you going to bring him back too? Well, Doyle Lodge is a 90-year-old Texas Ranger. And um, yeah. he's a homage to a real person. I, I mentioned that the opening scene was yeah. a homage to the Andromeda strain. 
Well, Doyle Lodge is a um, is a homage to a, a, ma- a real life American hero named Dan Adario. I did a book mm-hmm. with Dan Adario called Chasing the Dragon. Dan was uh, uh, is one of the greatest DEA agents in history. He's been with them. He was with them from the very beginning when they were not even called the DEA. They were the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. They were the they they, they went under a series of different names. But the re- people ask, how did I learn all this stuff? How did I research all this opioid stuff? Well, I I researched it because I was doing I did a non-search a nonfiction mm-hmm. book with a DEA agent. That's how I learned all the stuff that I put into the book, and I made him a kind of Doyle Lodge is an ex-Texas Ranger and an ex-DEA agent who, like the real-life Dan Adario, lost his son to opioids and now has reason. He is another one of these bridge characters who helps Court Wesley, with inform- who supplies information to Court Wesley mm-hmm. in exchange for Court Wesley helping him bring down um, the, the, the true force behind the opioid crisis. Um, so he's just another fun character, another character mm-hmm. who who just comes to life and jumps off the page. And the mere fact that you asked me if I was going to bring him back shows, mm-hmm. illustrates that I succeeded. Because you always want to leave, as a writer, you always want to leave the reader wanting more. You always, And sometimes the most popular characters in a series are not the heroes, but they're yeah. the characters you don't see quite as much. This isn't just true of me. If you know, A lot of Spencer fans think love Hawk more than Spencer. A lot of James Lee Burke fans love, rather would see scenes with Cleet Purcell than Dave Roby show. A lot of fans of Caitlin Strong ra- love the scenes with Leroy Epps and Guillermo yeah, um, Paz and Nola more than they enjoy the scenes with Caitlin Strong. There's a mix there. Finding the proper chemistry, the proper balance between the primary characters and the secondary characters and how they interact is one of the differences between a professional and an amateur. The difference between a writer, when you finish their newest book, you can't wait for their next one, and a writer that you put their latest book down. The sad part is you're 100% right, but I won't tell you um, the writer that I'm reading. And I find, you know me, I could finish 500 pages in about two hours. And right. There's a five, and there's a 500-page book, and I won't say who wrote it, that's been taking me three weeks just to get through the first, five, first 200 pages. And it's not that the book is bad, it's just that the story is far-fetched. It could not happen. There's no way that this could happen. And I'm going to see if I can do my best, seriously. So well, you just, you're just you getting at a very important thing because Robert, yeah, Louis Stevenson, Robert Louis Stevenson said the greatest thing, I think, ever about this kind of book. When he said yeah. it doesn't matter, of course, he wrote Treasure Island um, and, and you know adventure stories. And he said that it doesn't matter to me if you believe what I'm writing is real. All that matters to me is that you do not disbelieve it. That's the, where the phrase, the suspension of disbelief, comes from. And when you read something that's far-fetched, strong from the heart is far-fetched, but it doesn't feel far-fetched because of the way it's written. So it's not the tale, as Stephen King has said. It's the telling of the tale that that makes you suspend your disbelief 
so that nothing appears far-fetched in the world that the writer has created. No, I agree with you. With this particular book, I won't say what it is. Um, what the character does at the beginning, I get. But how they go about what they're going to do is impossible. There's no way and that this could happen. And there's no way that where the character goes could actually happen or whatever. So I'm just taking it as a mystery thriller with a little sci-fi in it, seriously. And I'm going to do my best to, to review it or not. So... Dylan, and before we end, we and we find out what's next for you and when Caitlin's coming back and all about the the next um, book of in the other series. Uh, are you Dylan and Nola? Yes or no? I'm keeping them together? Or she is he going to wise up and realize this is not right? You know, you're asking me a question. If you asked me if I had a kid, Dylan, you know, if Dylan was my son and you asked me that question and all this was real, I wouldn't know the answer. I don't know the answer anymore because yeah, I haven't. I, know. I don't know what the, the. I don't make these decisions. The characters make them for me. I know that Uh-oh. sounds like a cop out answer, but it's true. I know. I have to see where the where the characters are going. I mean, you, you just suggested something very interesting about Nola's attraction to Court Wesley Masters. That would make a yeah. great subplot. Um, yeah, it would. In, in a book uh, that she comes on to him. And of course, in her mind, hey, it's fine, father, son. Hey, this is this is cool, um, and and he's revolted by it. it. It would be, and yet, is he tempted? Probably not. But is he? Can he deny that this is an, this is an absolutely striking young woman? Of course not. You know, he has eyes. <laughs> he he has a brain. Um, so I, I think you've actually suggested a great idea for the future. But I don't know well, anything else besides. Well, because Kate going to knock a if she just go, go near him. And I think that would make for gr- what a great scene what, too. What what's the next step beyond triangle? Because we we'd have Caitlin, Nola, Court Wesley, and Dylan. I mean, it's not a triangle, a quadrangle. So so there you go. We got really a quadrangle. Cool. So where can everybody find out about you? And when am I getting the next book? Seriously. Well, the next book you, you're going to have sooner than you think, and it is my first effort in the in the Margaret Truman's Capital Crime series, um, oh, called Murder on the Metro. And oh, I, I, so you're, you're going to see, uh, you know, a, a classic brand revitalized, uh, much the same way I revitalized. I brought Murder She Wrote back to its true yeah, you roots. Did. I'm I'm bringing you did. capital the capital crime series back to its true roots. And you know, for the for the Murder She Wrote series, the true roots were television. The previous writer who I replaced, who did 46 books. An amazing number, an amazing accomplishment, but he never watched the television show, so he really didn't have any mm-hmm. idea what he was doing. Really, you know, so he never stayed true to the spirit of the characters, which which I found offensive. Um, you know, he took liberties that that I, that I don't think the writers yeah, of the show. So what I did was when I took over Murder She Wrote, um, I wrote the books the way the writers of the original show would have written the books, and in Capital Crimes, when these were huge New York Times bestsellers. They were New York Times bestsellers, big New York Times bestsellers, for a reason that went away for a while. And I'm bringing that back as well. I'm excited. So where can everybody find out about you and your work? And you can always go to johnlandbooks.com, but you'll only see what I want you to see. So I always tell people, go online, <laughs> Google, Google, mine, you know, Google the book, Google me, and, and see what's out there besides all my 
outstanding warrants and tax liens and all all, all <laughs> the stuff that you'll find if you if you really <laughs> no I'm no, just kidding there. Um, but um, you know, uh, see what people are saying. The, the acclaim for this book is off the charts. Strong from the Heart is the best received book I've ever done. People, yep. for the reasons that you've alluded to, that we've discussed, some advertent, some inadvertent, that we've covered in this hour. Um, it was a lot of fun to write and to come back to that theme, and I think it's going to be even more fun to read. Well, before I hang up and tell you, um, Marsha Casper Cook is the host of A Good Story is a Good Story, and she's been listening, and before she, she's been doing this a lot to me, uh, she said for me to put her in an email with you, she would like to have you on her show. Well, twist my arm, because you know to help sales, I'll go to the opening of an envelope. Yeah, she's, um, she's, is real, she's different you know, than I so, am, and she's so, funny. Yes, de- definitely put us in touch, um, and, and I, I'd love to be on her show. Yeah, she wants to talk to you about writing and style and, I don't know, whatever else she comes up with. So I'm she wants to get all the wrong information. Yeah. <laughs> Those people that don't know it, I, what can I say? I try my best. Uh, my last book came out July 8th. It's called What If. Dark stories about what if you lived in the world that Frank created. Would everybody stop going to these parties and acting ridiculous now? And you'd be pretty scared to read what I wrote. And tomorrow would have been my sister's birthday. She passed away 10 years ago. I still don't know why and how. Sisters is coming out tomorrow officially on Amazon Kindle. And it's true stories going up with her in the South Bronx. I've got some good press on it. And let me say this, that my sister and I wrote one or two of those together. And, yeah, so what if in the 70s and 80s they didn't have a cell, we didn't have a cell phone? She wanted to leave that in to see if anybody realized it, I guess. That, that's what she did. But um, that came out, and if anybody wants to read it, let me know. Uh, Sisters is getting a lot of good press. What if it's going to be followed by what's next? And <laughs> basically, John, I got I got the idea for what's next from when I walked into my doctor's office the other day just to hand him hand my um, dermatologist some books to read. That's the only way I get an appointment. I looked at the plexiglass and I thought, what would happen in a world? that everybody had to live behind the glass and couldn't come out. And that's just part of it. It's, so, a, it's, great, it's a great notion. I'm trying. I don't know how you get, but I'll get there. So, everybody, thank you, John, so much. Um, I'm waiting for the for the uh, Jessica Fletcher book. I didn't get that one yet, the new one, Murder in Season. No, the galleys haven't come out yet. Okay, and I have you down for November 23rd, and I have you down for December 8th for the panel show. And we've got some really interesting people that are coming on that particular one. And it should be it should be a lot of fun because you never know what I'm going to ask. You never, oh, here it is. We've got John Land, Lee Matthew Goldberg, Derek McFadden, and John DeSimone, who happened to write a book called The Road to Delano, which is about uh, migrant workers. It's really good. So, everybody, the sun is shining. It's beautiful outside. Have a great day, John. Thank you very much, and bye. Take care. Thank you, friend.